legislative fight over BDS, the political battle over designating the IRGC as a terrorist organization, and anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-Zionism on the far left. No, we're not talking about the United States. We're talking about ongoing topics across the pond in the United Kingdom. Joining us today to discuss these issues and many more, David Rose, politics and investigations editor for UK's Jewish Chronicle. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Hey, Rich. How are you, Hey, I'm great, buddy. How was your summer? It's going great. It's going great. I think we're all in the sort of bringing it in for a landing mode, getting ready for Labor Day and the Chagim. Oh, Uh, yeah. Rosh Hashanah. It's coming. The shofar is sounding. Yeah, yeah. Get ready. Get ready. And, and, you know, we have a great guest today who is going to give us lots to think about. Push us out of our comfort zone a little bit. Talk more about what's going on across the pond. We're, we're becoming regular us? Anglophiles on this podcast. I, know, I, know, I right? like it. I like it. Uh, for, did you all, know, by the way, did you know fish and chips were brought to the United Kingdom by Jews? I thought they were brought by my dad. No, well, he was a Jew, so he was a Jew like, from the United Kingdom. No, so no, but I, I'm going to do a little research, and for our next podcast, I will have the full story about how fish and chips were brought to the United Kingdom by the Jewish people. If you could find the family that was behind it and feature them on the podcast, that's a challenge. You, okay. you are now challenged. You will find I'm, that I'm, person. I'm on it. I'm on it. All right. Rich, okay. why don't you introduce our guest? Let's here. do it. Let's bring him on. David Rose, the politics and investigations editor at the Jewish Chronicle. He's a former contributing editor at Vanity Fair, special investigations writer for the Mail on Sunday and Daily Mail, former home affairs editor at The Observer, and a former reporter at BBC TV's Current Affairs. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, really incredible reporting you've been doing across the pond, uh, a series of shocking reports, really, that I think have shaken up uh, the policy uh, debate uh, in London. Uh, this, of course, about the extent of Iran's networks, the IRGC's networks inside the UK. Give us, for our listeners who may not be regular readers of, of the Chronicle, though they should be after this episode, uh, an overview of what you have found so far. Well, I've really been uh, digging into the whole Iranian situation since uh, the autumn of last year. And I began by looking at the activities of the Islamic Center of England, which is a large mosque in a converted movie picture house, motion picture house in central London, which is uh, run by a man called Sayyad Musavi, who is uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the Iranian supreme leader's designated personal representative in the United Kingdom. Uh, Now, this institution has been a kind of hotbed of pro-Khomeiniist activity for many years. It has put on uh, a long line of very extreme speakers and preachers, uh, sometimes in person in London, sometimes online from Tehran. 
Uh, it also famously, or should I say notoriously, held a vigil uh, in January 2020, attend attended by more than 2,000 people to mourn the death of uh, Qasem Soleimani, the IRGC's terrorist mastermind who was taken out by US drone, drone strike. Um, now, that led to them being investigated by the Charity Commission, which um, found that uh, it was indeed a hotbed of extremism and it issued what it called a final warning because um, the, uh, the, the, just, the... Just to be clear, the Charity Commission, that's a UK government institution. It's a government agency which regulates charities. So, you know, yeah. because it's registered as a charity, this institution, and indeed many of the other Iranian institutions that I've been looking at, uh, is able to get generous tax breaks on it, on its income. So uh, they began that, but then I discovered that uh, the same place uh, in the summer of last year, almost exactly a year ago, had been used to film a video called Hello Commander or Salute Commander, which is was filmed with over 300 school children at an Iranian school, an Iranian regime-owned school in North London. Uh, and this is a propaganda video which celebrates the coming of the Mahdi, the twelfth uh, Imam in Shia theology, who whose arrival will uh, herald the end of days, the final apocalypse, the battle between good and evil. The the only catch is that also according to regime uh, ideology, for this to happen, Jews have to be exterminated across the world and the state of Israel destroyed. So here were these kids singing a propaganda video in English and in Farsi filmed partly at the Islamic Center of England, partly at this school they attended, the um, uh, Islamic Republic of Iran Primary School in North London. Well, that was the beginning. And what I discovered was just the most extraordinary uh, seam of, of, of shocking revelations. I went on to look at another institution, the Islamic College of London, which at that stage um, was having its degrees and courses validated by a proper state university, the Middlesex University, but is in fact a front for the Al Mustafa University um, in Iran, in Qom, the holy city of Qom, the center of the regime, uh, which has been uh, sanctioned by the United States as a terrorist entity. Numerous students from abroad who have studied in Qom have come in via kind of feeder institutions such as the Islamic College of London, have gone on to fight in places such as uh, Yemen, Syria. Uh, and, and elsewhere as a f for IRGC proxies. Well, my investigation there led to the Middlesex University terminating its relationship. I also got another investigation going into the Charity Commission, but by the sorry by the Charity Commission into the Islamic Centre of England. But even that wasn't the end of it. Um, I then did a series of stories um, about Iranian assassination plots. You'll recall that uh, in I think April of this year. The police in Greece, working with the uh, Israeli Mossad, arrested two terrorists who were IRGC operatives who were planning a bombing campaign against Jewish targets in Greece. Well, shortly before this, Tom Tugendhat, our security minister, had disclosed in the House of Commons that Iran was behind at least, at least 15 foiled assassination plots in Britain over the preceding 12 months. And some of these were... Uh, against prominent uh, diaspora Jews living in Britain. Um, I then found uh, this woman, Catherine Perez-Shakdam, who had infiltrated the heart of the Iranian regime. She's a Jewish woman uh, originally from Paris who got to know uh, Ebrahim Raisi, 
uh, Khamenei himself and the late uh, Nader Talabzadeh, who was one of the Iranian regime's most significant propagandists. And she told me how she had been to conferences in Tehran at which uh, the this idea of mapping the Jewish community abroad to prepare assassination plots have been openly discussed. Now, at first, her story just seemed too incredible to believe. But what clinched it was I found uh, through many other sources, all kinds of evidence that she was there. And then she was actually, she didn't sell her story too well. She then showed me all these photographs with these people. I mean, it was perfectly clear that she really had had this extraordinary access to the heart of the Iranian regime. Was she, was she like an intelligence officer? What was she? What was she doing there? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, she, <laughs> I mean, she says not. Um, I mean, it's clear that she's, you know, she shared information that she's had not only uh-huh. with me, but I think, you know, she's certainly spoken to people in the Israeli embassy in London and so forth. I, I but, but clearly, I mean, she's at this a very point, the Iranians figure. know who she is. They know where oh, she yeah. lives, and and she's now exposed an incredible amount of information. So she's a target, like like other enemies of the regime. She's definitely a target. Um, well, the next set of stories, which started uh, two or three months ago, um, I managed to, uh, by using Google Scholar and other similar databases, um, I managed to find uh, papers, academic papers, uh, in which uh, Iranian researchers at universities uh, on the UK and US sanctions list as uh, being involved in Iran, Iran's nuclear program had written a whole series of collaborative um research or had, had conducted a whole load of con- collaborative research projects with su- scientists in Britain, some of them uh, at universities closely linked to our own defense industry, such as the Cranfield University of Technology, which is, has a partnership with the British Ministry of Defense. And these joint partnerships had covered a whole host of overtly mer- military and dual-use technology, including drone control systems uh, for attack drones, improving the engines of attack drones, uh, new ways to uh, make jet jet engines more powerful uh, and consume less fuel, uh, other advanced communication systems of direct relevance to the battlefield. So that was another set of stories. And then the last set, uh, which uh, was just published earlier this month, I discovered this organization called the Canon Tohid, which stands for Center of Monotheism. Now, this is in a converted church in Hammersmith in West London, and it is the center of the Union of Islamic Students of Europe. Well, um, I discovered that uh, it had, first of all, recently hosted a whole series of incredibly extremist uh, sp- speeches and, 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 and rallies uh, w- at which you know, open support for the IRGC, martyrdom, and so forth. But not only that, over the past three years, it's put on at least eight online lectures piped straight into the uh, bedrooms of students at British universities by senior commanders in the IRGC. And in those lectures, two of which I managed to get recordings of, uh, they these commanders have um, expressed demands to uh, that people join this apocalyptic struggle, which involves the elimination of, of, of international jury. Uh, they've been urged that they should become warriors and, and I mean, really, really extreme stuff and, and open support for terrorism. So um, 
there's a lot going on. And yet the British government uh, still hasn't prescribed the IRGC as a terrorist organization, as of course America has. David, I had a couple sort of threshold questions because I'm not as familiar with UK law as, as American law. So in the United States, a lot of these prosecutions against sort of far right groups, uh, far left groups, they always get tricky because until there's sort of an actionable step um, that has been turned on, it's really tough to, you know, the Klan, West Virginia White Pride, whoever it is, it's really tough to, to prosecute these groups because, you know, they have such First Amendment protections. Um, what is UK law? Like, how does UK law treat that? And, and is that part of, is it like a political will or, or a lack of political will to go after these organizations? Or does the structure of UK jurisprudence sort of uh, handcuff authorities and they kind of want to, but they can't really because of protections provided to religious institutions? I wonder, that, that, that was my first question. And then I have more questions about, uh, the joint papers between Israel, um, Iranian scientists, uh, because that's, that just blows my mind. Uh, the whole you, thing blows my mind. Yeah, yeah I want to ask you, you more about you, that. You've but. described a, a, the closest ally of the United States completely infiltrated by an enemy of the United States. I mean, I remember as a student at Johns Hopkins, when they got a new president who was Canadian, they actually had a section off the applied physics lab because he was not an American citizen. And they did so much military research there. They had it. And the guy was Canadian. Like, you know, yeah. he, was, he was from, you know, he's from Ottawa. So t- tell me, tell me about yeah. the, this question of, of like, how do they go after or and, not go and, after? And, and Jared, I think it's also helpful for our listeners to know just like basic differences between Correct. UK policy Correct. and US policy. Like, is Iran a state sponsor of terrorism? Is the IRGC a terrorist organization? How do you treat yes. Iran operating yes. inside your country where we don't have Iran inside our country? Well, right. yes. well, I mean, to deal with the First Amendment issue first, I mean, we don't have a First Amendment. Right. We, right. we are uh, we're signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. And Article 10 of that is essentially a free speech um, uh, protection. However, it's much less sweeping than the First Amendment. It's much easier for courts uh, and governments to balance competing needs of security and free speech. So, it, the, the First Amendment difficulties that can arise in, in the uh, in the United States don't really uh, operate here. But that said, um, I have absolutely no doubt that the, the the legal tool that the government needs, and this is very much the view of Tom Tugendhat, Security Minister, and Suella Brabham, the Home Secretary, uh, is that w- what we should do is uh, is prescribe the IRGC in its entirety as a terrorist organisation, um, uh, and um, that is is kind of it's a bit stronger than than merely designating it. In, as in the US as, as a state sponsor of terrorism, it means that we're actually saying this is a terrorist organization, which of course it clearly is. Um, now, if that were to be enacted, that would give uh, tremendously powerful tools to law enforcement to go after both the organizations that are Iranian sponsored and people who support them. If you designate an entity as a terrorist organization under our Terrorism Act passed in 2000, it means that to uh, espouse, share, disseminate its ideology is in, is in of itself a criminal offence. It means that, um, I mean, we have sanctions against these, these named universities. We have sanctions also against Iran covering a whole host of 
both military and dual-use technologies. But, you know, it's quite difficult to, to get a prosecution under that set of laws. Uh, prescription of the IGC, the terrorist organization, means that anybody doing business with any entity that had a connection with the IGC would also be committing a criminal offense. So it would stop the academic collaborations in their tracks. It's very clear that the IGC plays a major role in all Iranian universities. And indeed, you know, it's issued directives uh, telling Iranian universities what Iran's needs are and how to get them from foreigners. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. Also in the JC, we revealed this strategy document that was issued by the regime in 2021, co-signed by the commander in chief of the IRGC. And it says, you know, it is a priority to get. And there's a long list of technologies and you must work with people abroad to get hold of them. So that really would give us legal tools. As things stand, the instruments are weak. So even the Charity Commission, uh, it's, it can reinvestigate and it isn't reinvestigating the Islamic Centre of England, but to actually shut it down is incredibly difficult. So, you know, we, we have the, the laws on our books. What we're not doing at the moment is, is using them. And I think that, that begs, a, you know, another set of important questions. Why hasn't the British government prescribed the IRGC as a, as, as a terrorist organisation? Now, uh, I, I met Rich in, in London earlier in the year, and he was, you know, talking about this same issue with, with people in London. And, and the long, long and the short of it is that the British Foreign Office, the equivalent of the State Department, believes it's not in our interest to do so. It believes that it can continue to engage with the regime more fruitfully if we don't take this step. My own belief, and, and certainly the belief of, of, of many other politicians of, of all the main parties in Britain, don't share that view. Wow. And it's, in, and it's, it's interesting to me that in the post 9-11 era, the British government was very forceful, obviously being victimized by radical Sunni Islamic extremism. Obviously, what happened in the United States in 9-11 came to London as well and in various ways. Uh, and there was no real hesitation to use the prescription laws uh, for extensive prosecutions of charities and various networks and mosques that, that were being used by various uh, Islamic extremist organizations, terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda, etc. We saw that again uh, with the rise of ISIS uh, and their tentacles into Europe. And yet there's no, at least today, official policy that treats Iranian terrorism, Iranian extremism, the Khomeiniism, that is, through, is extensive now throughout Britain based on your research, in the same way, which leaves Britain completely vulnerable. Yeah, and what do what do sort of average citizens of the UK make of this? Right, so it seems like you have the politicians. Uh, Is it on the radar? Yeah, yeah. So, some politicians sort of facing off against the bureaucracy of the Foreign Office, who think that you know we're we know better. We've been at this a long time, uh, where there may be some political will to do this, but maybe not political enough political will to to go against the, the Foreign Office. What a what a sort of John Q uh, UK citizen think about this, or does it not even register? Well, I think it's beginning to register. Um, I mean, when you have statements made in Parliament that there have been 15 assassination plots um, against people who live in England, that, that starts to percolate a little bit. And other news media have picked up some of my recent stories, which is encouraging. But, you know, with the best one in the world, this is not high on the mainstream 
domestic political agenda. I mean, you know, we have a cost of living crisis, we have an energy problem, we have Ukraine, we have, you know, all kinds of issues. Um, so, you know, it is it is more the foreign policy elites who are, you know, conducting this debate. Um, Lord Stuart Polak, member of the House of Lords, um, has been uh, a tremendous champion of the cause of taking stronger action against Iran and of prescribing the IRGC. Uh, I had a conversation with him a little while back in which he said that he thought it would actually take an Iranian-backed terrorist, terrorist attack on UK soil before people really woke up and decided, yeah, the time has come, we have to act. Uh, I hope that's wrong. But certainly, um, at the moment, the, the momentum has stalled. I think it's picked up just a little bit with the, the story I did on the IRGC commanders. Um, I mean, the idea that the IRGC could actually be proselytizing on British university campuses online is kind of chilling. Um, and maybe that's making people take it a little bit more seriously. But, you know, there is no logic to this. So Hamas, both its political and military wing, is prescribed as a terrorist entity. So is Palestinian, uh, as a terrorist organization. So is Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So is Hezbollah. So are the Houthis. These are all, as you know, uh, proxies or clients of the IRGC. So, you know, the, the heads of the Hydra are on the radar. It's a criminal offense to vocally support Hezbollah or Hamas in Britain. But, you know, the body of the parent of that hydra remains for the time being untouched. And an interesting phenomenon in the politics of today's Britain has been the shadow secretary uh, on on the labor side coming out very quickly when uh, Secretary uh, Foreign Secretary cleverly said he was putting it off, that there were all these reports that, that the foreign office was pushing back. Labor came out and said, you know, we should prescribe. They should absolutely prescribe. They should be on the prescription list. And it was like, what? Labor? This is this is this this is no longer Corbyn's labor. You know what what is going on in Britain today? Labor, conservatives, how is this how is this inverting at the moment? And what do you make of the evolution of labor? Obviously, we're we're watching British politics as best we can from over here. It's not looking good for the Tories uh, politically in all the polls we see. So all of us are bracing for a potential labor government soon. And so we obviously lived through watching you all live through Corbyn and sort of want to know, is, is it over? Is this is new labor, new labor again? Is it, or, you know, where are we? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, and I got to say, first of all, I have been astonished at the ruthlessness and skill that Keir Starmer has displayed in taking yeah, on, what's going on his enemies inside the Labour Party. Uh, I went to last year's Labour Party conference, and for me, an extraordinary moment came during Keir Starmer's speech as leader of the party in this packed hall. With, I don't know how many thousand people there, but it was very well attended. He talked about how he had been trying to eradicate anti-Semitism from the Labour Party. And as he spoke of that, spontaneously, the just about everyone there rose to their feet and gave him a standing ovation in the middle of his speech. And that was a kind of shiver down the spine moment. Um, in fact, the headline we had on, on my front page report on that was, was this the moment Keir Starmer won back Labour's Britain's Jewish community? I think it's fair to say that you know 
uh, a very large proportion of people in the Jewish community who would normally have voted Labour uh, uh, did not do so in 2017 or 2019 because they could not countenance uh, a government led by Corbyn. And indeed, you know, personally, I felt as a Jew a visceral fear of what they might do if they ever came to power. First of all, a lot of the people who uh, were responsible for the uh, driving of Labour down that tr terribly dangerous road have simply left the party. The Labour Party membership has shrunk by over a fifth, maybe a quarter by now. And the people who've left are the poisonous anti-Semitic hard left. Where have, they, where have they gone? They've gone back to the extreme left wing groups where they first came from. I mean, okay. th th they came to take over the Labour Party because the, the former leader, Ed Miliband, the one before Corbyn, who, by the way, is Jewish, uh, introduced this crazy rule where you could join the party and vote for the next leader if you paid a three pound subscription, you know, $5, less than $5. Um, and, and so hundreds well, that's, that's of that one. That's an easy hack. That's an easy Yeah, hack. I mean, yeah. <laughs> anyway, no, when Corbyn stood, nobody imagined he could win. And then, of course, he did. Um, but beyond that, I mean, Starmer has been so serious about um, uh, exerting party discipline. And he's not just been doing it in terms of policy. He's been doing it at the very important level of selection of candidates. Um, very few, if any, uh, hard left figures have crept onto the candidates' lists in constituencies which Labour should hope to win if it's going to win a majority, as I personally believe it will. So I think Starmer has acted you know, with decisiveness and skill beyond anything I ever expected. It's interesting, though, to look at how that's happened. Now, Tony Blair, uh, who, of course, was the leader of New Labour, now runs this enormous think tank, the Tony Blair Institute, which in many ways does uh, you know, a lot of impressive work. And it's also got a very high income. And you know, there are very serious people attached to that who are very influential with Starmer. And you know, Starmer has been learning the, 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 the job of internal politics from people who were schooled in that period uh, after Labour won uh, the election of 97. And I mean, as you know, Blair won three elections in a row, a very, very difficult achievement in the United Kingdom. So the, polit the political skills there, the ruthlessness is there. And, you know, I personally do not fear at all that uh, a Starmer government will lead to any revival of the politics we saw in the Corbyn years, quite the reverse, in fact. I think this will be a disciplined party. And indeed, you know, the, the few hard left figures who do remain on the parliamentary benches will be more isolated because the people who will be joining and, and you know, adding to the numbers of Labour MPs will not be of their ilk at all. They'll be much more centrist. They'll be much more like New Labour. In terms of policy, I mean, you know, Lamy's position on the sorry David Lamy is the shadow foreign secretary the 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 labor foreign affairs spokesperson who can be expected to to be the equivalent of secretary of state the the the, the foreign secretary and, and you know I've I've talked to him about the issue he's absolutely serious about it he sees the threat he says well you know let's just do this and and I find that very encouraging um so you know labor really has changed i think they will face great challenges in power especially on the economic front uh, and, you know, whether that leads to, you know, erosion of their support or whatever, I mean, who knows? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a long way down the road. There won't, in my view, be an election for over a year. But um, I, I do think uh, the Corbyn years have finally closed. And I mean, let's not forget the symbolic nature that not only did Starmer uh, 
withdraw uh, Corbyn's whip. That is to say, he was not allowed to vote as a Labour MP anymore because he wouldn't acknowledge the extent of the party's previous anti-Semitism. He wouldn't recognise the report that was done by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission in Britain, which which found that Labour had become institutionally anti-Semitic. But Starmer has also made sure that that Corbyn cannot stand again as a Labour candidate uh, in in his constituency, where he's been an MP for I don't know since the eighties. So, you know, he means it. And you mentioned the Blair Institute. Uh, they have an entire Iran program that has been putting out just regular reports that are excellent, really pushing the policy envelope in a direction counter to where the current foreign office is. And we should be clear, the foreign office is an institution. It's a bureaucracy that that will still exist in a labor government. And that labor mm-hmm. government may have this wonderful you know, foreign secretary appointed who said wonderful things and suddenly... That foreign secretary starts looking a lot like James Cleverly and and like the like the prior one as well, which happens in the United States too with with secretaries of state and the state department. Rich, I, w- I was a I was a political appointee in a cabinet department, and I supervised a staff of fifty career bureaucrats. Uh, one of which who walked up to me on my first day and said, I, "You're only going to be here for eighteen months. You can't fire me in eighteen months. So I'm just going to sit here and not do anything. And well, how about you just leave me alone?" So uh, that's my own micro version of this, but that that happens. Right, in, in all these situations. One day there will be a book that is uh, bipartisan, co-authored about civil service reform. And it can be transatlantic, yeah. too. However, yeah. uh, my question is actually a little bit shifting gears to the topic of BDS. Uh, this was a manifesto promise by the Tories. Uh, manifesto, for, for our listeners who are not familiar with UK lingo and are thinking some sort of communist red book, um, is, is the language used for a party platform. Uh, and and so this was a campaign promise that they would do something to prohibit BDS in Britain. Uh, obviously, at the federal level, we haven't been able to do that in the U.S., but we have uh, more than 35 states now that have taken their own action to have in various ways disincentivize corporations from boycotting Israel. And we've seen throughout Britain a lot of the local governments enacting their own local BDS with their pension funds, et cetera. And that's that's been quite a controversy throughout throughout Britain. What is the status of that? We've seen some reporting of a bill moving forward to prohibit those local government pension divestments, uh, but then some Tory backbenchers, it looked like, were protesting with all kinds of different reasons and still moving forward, but it, it's not clear to us, I think, in the States what's happening there. Help us help us out. Yeah. So as you say, there is now a bill uh, which has gone through, um, it's been presented to Parliament, it's, it's gone through um, its uh, second reading. Now it'll move to committee. I have to say, I think it's a bill which has been badly drafted. I think it has uh, weaknesses that have been seized on by its critics. Uh, And my hope is that it can be amended to get rid of those weaknesses. But as things stand, um, I think it's quite a clumsy piece of legislation. In fact, it's such a clumsy piece of legislation. I wonder if the people who actually wrote it wanted it to fail because, um, you know, it, it contains elements that just make no sense. So, for example, um, it says that uh, uh, in future, uh, the government may decide, uh, I mean, first of all, it's not just about BDS. What it says is that is that public bodies, which include local councils and universities and other you know, institutions, can't make economic decisions about investment or pension funds or, or anything else uh, on the basis of political uh, 
uh, assessment, political opposition to uh, you know a particular country, other than in certain, with certain exceptions. And and it says that the, the the Secretary of State for the relevant government department, which is called the Government for Local Communities and Leveling Up, Michael Gove, who is you know in many ways a, a very experienced and an impressive minister, uh, it says that th- that department, that Secretary of State, can say, okay, you could boycott China if you don't like its Uyghur policy, for example. But the weaknesses of the bill, for example, it says that Israel and the occupied territories can never be the subject of a sort of exemption where, you know, something like a BDS campaign is allowable. Well, you know, that's been seized on by critics who say, well, supposing, you know, a really, really terrible government took took power in Israel and did some stuff that was, you know, everyone around the world, not just, you know, the usual suspects thought, thought was, was, was appalling. Surely then it would be right that the action could be taken. So that's one weakness. An awful lot of power is also handed to the Secretary of State under the way that the, the, the measure is being drafted so that, you know, he becomes almost like the, the judge and the jury to decide whether uh, you know, a, a public body has breached this legislation, and he also has the power to set penalties. So, you know, I I don't think it's a great measure. I think it's coming from a good place, but I'm concerned that its inherent weaknesses may lead to it um, failing. Now, we were talking a little while ago about Labour, and I think it's quite interesting to to look at Labour in this context. Having just said that Labour's you know, doing a much more impressive job, I have to say that I find its position on this bill very disappointing. Um, at a very early stage, at the second reading, it basically said we can't support this bill unless the government you know, it, it changes it to a point where it's unrecognisable and, and it set out ways in which you wanted to do this. But also in its platform, in its policy here, Labour is saying, well, you know, we we think this is inappropriate. And in any case, it, it, this has been part of its platform, by the way, for, for nearly 10 years. Um, we, we want to recognise a Palestinian state on, on, on our first day in office. Well, this is this is a crazy policy. I mean, what is the Palestinian state? Who are you recognising? You're recognising Hamas? Are you recognising the, the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah with, it, with its own record of human rights abuse? I mean, it, it's an incoherent policy and it's an incoherent way to or an incoherent message to use when trying to criticize this BDS bill so I think the politics of this uh, have yet to be fully worked out I hope that people are thinking hard over the summer to rewrite this measure in a way that will make it much more effective and more effectively targeted but um, at the moment there's no sign of whether they will. Can we I want to pivot a little bit just to ask you about the state of UK-Israel relations. We've talked a lot about the domestic goings-on, BDS, Iran, but what's the state of the relationship between the United Kingdom and Israel? Well, in in some ways, it's never been closer. Um, uh, Negotiations for for a very wide-ranging free trade deal between Britain and Israel uh, are uh, at an advanced stage. Uh, Most people expect there will be um, a deal within a few weeks. So that's very positive. There is also a very close security relationship. Um, I think the importance of uh, Israel's security and intelligence agencies, especially given the uh, emerging threat from Iran, uh, has is widely appreciated. And again, it's, a, it's a, an extremely close relationship. Um, politically, there's no doubt that uh, 
people both in the current government and in the Labour Party have difficulties with aspects of Benjamin Netanyahu's current policy and the composition of his coalition with the um, the far-right leaders, uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, Israeli politics themselves are so tangled now and and in you know can can be argued that benjamin netanyahu himself is, is unprecedentedly weak a slave to events over which he seems to have little control but you know slowly but surely i think the um the the the, the political chaos in israel is starting to affect the relationship uh, and, and of course you know things like the you know the the, the boycotts by military reservists and so on, they make quite a big impact in, in the United Kingdom. So, you know, at, at one level, it's a very good relationship, but I, I think it's a relationship which could come under a lot of pressure in the, in the near to medium term. Uh, on a related topic, as far as just giving us sort of a status update, um, we've we've heard your assessment of labor on this issue, but more broadly, we, we're having, obviously, a lot of discussions in the United States about the rise of anti-Semitism. We've talked about, uh, with a prior guest, uh, actually from, from the Chronicle, uh, uh, Ben Judah, looking at the, the rest of, of Europe as well. What is the state of anti-Semitism in Britain today? You know, how, how does the Jewish community see itself? How strong is it? You know, how secure is it? Is anti-Semitism rising? Is it stable? Is it going down? You know, how do you sort of see the Jews of the UK today? Well, I mean, I think the the removal of Corbyn from the Labour leadership was a very important step in making people feel safer because it meant that um, expressions of anti-Semitism couched as anti-Zionism were no longer acceptable and mainstream. But that said, I think there are serious issues. Now, the, the, the main um, uh, organization that, that tries to protect the Jewish community is the Community Security Trust. And the CST is an extremely impressive organization. It has an amazing investigative arm. I often work with them. It also has an extraordinary security arm, which has, you know, it has networks of, of uh, CCTV cameras, it has control rooms, it, has motion sensors, infrared stuff, and you know, if some if something is detected near a potential Jewish target, a school or or, or or some other or a synagogue, whatever, you know, these guys are on it. They tell the police often their arrests and and, and so on. Um, but that said, I mean, there is nevertheless a depressing, uh, generally rising curve of anti-Semitic incidents, and you know, it's it's detectable with expressions from the extreme right online, which has been surging tremendously. It is regrettably uh, increasingly prevalent uh, in some of Britain's Muslim communities where um, uh, anti-Zionism that goes far beyond mere political opposition to the state of Israel is openly and nakedly expressed. I mean, the IRGC is able to get traction in the UK because it's against a background in which uh, some Muslims, especially young Muslims, see it as entirely legitimate to go on demonstrations and call, you know, the, the you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. The Hamas slogan, which obviously is a, is, is a not very coded call for the emanation state of Israel. There's this death chant which references the Battle of Khyber in in the seven, in the 600s when uh, a Muslim army wiped out a Jewish community in a, in a town called Khyber in what's now Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, and and there's just violence. I mean, I did a rather shocking story um, about he just over a year ago, based on freedom of information requests to every um, secondary um, as high school uh, in in the country, and we discovered that uh, there was a rising tide of incidents that over the last five years they had roughly doubled, uh, and most schools simply had no kind of policy about how to deal with anti-Semitism. Sometimes they weren't even recognizing it. So Jewish students were reporting going into uh, laboratory classes and um, people would go, would make this hissing sound around, you know, their gas buns and burners to uh, remind the Jewish students of Auschwitz, just things like this. So, you know, there's that going on and, and there are physical attacks that take place. So, you know, I don't want to be alarmist. I think, you know, uh, do I feel unsafe as a Jew living in Britain today? No, I don't. I think I would have felt a lot more unsafe if Corbyn had become prime minister. Uh, am I concerned that uh, there is nevertheless a background of anti-Semitic incidents, both verbal and physical? Yes, I'm very concerned. And I also think it's uh, particularly apparent on some university campuses where a lot of Jewish students uh, have had extremely bad experiences. Um, and we, of course, saw the case of the Bristol professor, University of Bristol professor, David Miller, who was, a, you know, we can now say safely, he's a rabid anti-Semite. His own tweets condemn him. He was tweeting last week about how Jews are over-representative, over-represented in, in different fields. And you know, there should, he was going to publish a list of, of, of you know, where there were too many Jews in British public life. Well, some of his former supporters have finally come out and said, yeah, you are an anti-Semite. But most people have been saying this for years. And it's only, it took years before finally the University of Bristol fired him from his position where he'd been peddling anti-Semitism in class, you know, for, for a long time. So that kind of thing does happen. And it's, it's you know, nothing to be complacent about, that's for sure. I agree. I agree. Uh, this one is for all of uh, our friends and colleagues at Jewish Insider. Uh, the JC, the Jewish Chronicle, breaks a lot of news, very, very deep news, as Jewish Insider does as well in Washington. Um, you're, you're yourself, you're breaking national security, intelligence reports. I mean, things that are scooping the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, clearly having, this is my view, having watched this, significant influence over UK policy, policymakers, the politics uh, in London, at times far outsizing the Times or or the Telegraph or other you know leading papers. If you were giving advice to uh, a fellow reporter at Jewish Insider uh, and trying to translate what you do, how you operate at, at the Chronicle as a journalist, what you're trying to achieve, how you work London, what would be your advice? Wow. Um, well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is find someone you really trust who knows how to research things, who speaks fluent Farsi, because so much is out there in plain sight on the Internet written in Farsi. Many of my best leads have come from translations of pro-regime websites like Fars News, which is controlled by the Basij, an arm of the ILGC. Um, and, you know, this, this, I mean, an example, this Islamic College of London, um, which uh, is you know, essentially the UK branch of the Al Mustafa University in Com. Well, they tried to deny this, but I mean, it's there in Farsi, described as the London branch of Al Mustafa University, founded by Ayatollah Khamenei. I mean, um, 
or refounded. It was slightly it, it had existed in a slightly different form before. So that's that's the first piece of advice. Um, the second piece of advice I would give is you know preserve everything you find you know on the web. Make sure every time you 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 come across something of any significance, screenshot it, preserve it. Make make sure you've got it saved as PDFs because um, they just take this stuff down. I mean, I did a story two ten days ago about uh, again this Islamic Students Union, um, which uh, the, its head, a man called Abadi, had also been organising conferences in Iran, uh, luring British based scientists, Iranian descent, to go give lectures and, and talk as part of this you know, strategy to, to get knowledge from abroad. Um, well, you know, almost immediately that story was published. Everything vanished from the internet. They just took everything down. In fact, they took it down before I did the story, as soon as I started digging on it. So that that's that's the second thing, you know, just make sure you got everything uh, filed, filed and backed up. Um, and listen to Iranians. I mean, there are a lot of Iranians who absolutely hate this regime. Uh, and many of them are living in the United States, uh, where, of course, they are also vulnerable targets. Many of them are living in Britain. Uh, because the diaspora community, you know, it contains people of, of different shades of, of, of opinion. They know what's going on. Uh, they uh, they are only too willing to share what they know. Uh, and one of the things that I found very uh, encouraging about uh, Iranians who are uh, sworn enemies of the regime is that they do seem to like uh, sharing information with, with Jews and with people who are pro-Israel. So I would say make the most of that uh, resource as well. All right, David. Now we're going to go to the fun, the most fun part of the uh, of the podcast, uh, the lightning round, where we're going to have, we have a couple of questions to kind of get a little bit of better sense of who you are as a person. Um, the first question is: What do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And if you want to say something off color here, it's totally okay as long as it's in <laughs> as long as it's in Yiddish. Putz. Putz. Yeah, just because it's yeah. a phrase. Often used by William Styron in his great novel *Sophie's Choice*. That's one of my favorite books ever. One of the most brilliant novels of the twentieth century. All right. Uh, favorite Jewish food? Uh, well, I'm not sure it's strictly a Jewish food, but um, I had in Hamoked Square in Jerusalem uh, a few months ago the best beef carpaccio I have ever tasted in my life. But I suppose. <laughs> I suppose we just well, like it's, it's, just it's, like it's, it's now shtetl. a Jewish food. It's yeah. now a Jewish just like food. in the shtetl, the beef carpaccio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was sensational. It wasn't my uh, grandmother's beef carpaccio. I'll tell you that. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, favorite kosher spot in London? Golly, well, um, there aren't very many. Um, I mean, uh, my childhood, we used to go to this restaurant. In Gold's Green, in the heart of the Jewish community, it had another branch in the East End. Blooms, uh, Blooms. called Blooms. Yeah, which is wonderful. Yeah, that, that was my childhood. I got a hamburger. That's all I remember. I mean, I, I, when I was a young reporter, I was a crime reporter in the eighties and eighties um, and nineties, and, and I used to meet cops in Blooms in the East End. They, they always loved going for their salt beef. Um, oh, but so yeah, I don't think. I, I don't know. There's a very nice bagel bakery in 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 West Hampstead called Runnits, but um, I don't think there's any great kosher eateries in London that I'm aware of. Anyhow, all right, Rich. Last one. Bring it in for a landing here. Uh, favorite UK Prime Minister who is not Winston Churchill. 
Hmm. I'm going to say Gordon Brown. Interesting. Um, why? I I mean, for me, he's a, he's a tragic and tortured soul who had some terrible ideas and some quite good ideas. Um, and when he stood up in the House of Commons in early 2009 and said that he had saved the world uh, by stopping a global financial crash, or at least stopping it getting any worse, people thought this was vainglory and, and um, laughed at him. But actually, I think he did. Uh, I think he pretty much was the originator of the bailout strategy that was expensive, had many drawbacks, and did protect a lot of guilty people. Uh, but I think that if we hadn't had those bailouts, the economic situation of the world in the years after 2008 would have been much worse. And I think that at the G8 summit, sorry, the G20 summit that took place in December 2020 in London, presided over by Brown, he did something that is, you know, still largely unsung, but but quite remarkable. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, he's always going to be historically in Tony Blair's shadow. He was a man who was often very difficult to deal with. Um, but I, I think he was also motivated genuinely by a commitment to public service. Um, and, uh, you know, his his behaviour since he stopped being prime minister has been quite impressive, too. So, yeah, I nominate Gordon Brown. There it is, Gordon Brown. And David Rose, thank you so much for joining Jewish Insiders Podcast. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, too. Thanks a lot. Well, Rich, I promised you I would get you some information at the top of this podcast about fish and chips and the Jewish people and and, and found it I have. Going back to the 16th century, crypto Jews fleeing the Portuguese Inquisition brought you fish say crypto? and chips. crypto? Crypto Jews? Crypto like Jews. Like cryptocurrency? Yeah, there was crypto right. Jews? What crypto is, I Jews. What cri- uh, oh, I know what you mean now. Okay, I got yes. you. Yes. And actually, um, to Jews pretending to be Christians during the Inquisition, they ate fish on Fridays uh, when when meat was for, forbidden by the church. And so right. this was when uh, this group of people came to the United Kingdom. They brought fish and potatoes eaten together, which is something they did on the regular. Uh, they brought it to the United Kingdoms where it became very, uh, very popular and was even described by Thomas Jefferson as Jews, uh, as fish eaten in the Jewish fashion. So there you Wait, so it. is this connected to the Friday fish fry that you see at uh, any corner restaurant, country club, golf course throughout oh. the country? Well, you know, I'm not such an expert on uh, country clubs, um, but, uh, you know, there is something to be said for not eating meat, which was something that was forbidden by the Catholic Church uh, for many years and certainly during the Lenten period uh, still is. And so uh, this was something that actually, so I don't know the direct connection, but I do, I can't tell you. It's fascinating. I I never really, I always knew the connection to Lent and, and, and to the Friday prohibition. I never connected it to Britain or to Jews, for that matter. So that is very interesting information. For more tidbits of information, please call Jared Bernstein at all the information you could want at JewishInsider.com. Exactly. All right. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.